Some time ago, Los Angeles Times reported a screaming woman trapped in a car dangling from a freeway transition road in East Los Angeles, and she was rescued. But the 19-year-old woman apparently fell asleep behind the wheel, and the car, which plunged through a guardrail, was left dangling by its left rear wheel. Half dozen passing motorists stopped, grabbed some ropes from one of their vehicles, tied the ropes to the back of the woman's car, and hung on until the fire units arrived. A ladder was extended from below to help stabilize the car, while firefighters tied the vehicle to tow trucks with cables and chains. And every time we would move the car, said one of the rescuers, she'd yell and scream. She was in pain. It took almost two and a half hours, the report said, for passers-by police officers, tow truck drivers, and firefighters, about 25 people in all, to secure the car and pull the woman to safety. It was kind of funny, the L.A. County Fire Captain Ross Marshall recalled later. All she kept saying to us was, I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. There are times when self-sufficiency goes too far. You laugh, but we live in a time where self-sufficiency and personal independence is heralded as the ultimate pursuit. This is the mantra in Maine. Whether you're talking about planning your portfolio in order to retire early or ensure that you have enough resources to live well for the rest of your life or even living from day to day, our culture has made an idol out of personal independence. The irony is that self-sufficiency is an absolute illusion. In truth, most people who claim to be so are not. All of us depend upon something or someone for our security, don't we? Personal wealth, ability to work, the government, our investments, the stock market, job security, a stable economy, our intellectual prowess, all contribute to our false sense of well-being. Even as Christians, we're thrust into this worldly pattern of depending upon ourselves for everything. When our personal independence begins to take the shape of alienating our Father who is in heaven, we've gone too far. And you may say, well, I don't alienate God. What are you talking about? But I want you to take a minute and think honestly about your life. Even this morning, as you got out of bed and climbed into the shower, was God the first thought on your mind? Or was it what you had to do to get ready to be here on time? Or what you were planning to do following this service? What are the first words out of your mouth when you wake up each day? Do you ask God to occupy the center point in your life? Do you ask Him to control and order your every move? Each word you speak, your very thoughts that you think. How many of us on a daily basis, for all practical purposes, subconsciously live by the words of that 19-year-old woman, I'll do it myself. Honestly, what is your daily routine? Does it include dependence upon your heavenly Father? 
Again, when was the last time you sincerely started your day with God as your first thought and your central focus? I'd like you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, if you would, and verse 25. We're entering into this season, summertime, where lots of joyful activities take place after a long, cold, lonely winter. Sounds like a Beatles song. Here comes the sun, right? And we find enjoyment out of doing all these things. The lilacs are blooming outside. Where's God in that? You say, well, God's creator, God's Lord. We we recognize God all around us. Is he really on your mind? Verse 25 says, for who can eat, who can have enjoyment without him? Here's the crux of the whole issue and the hinge point of Solomon's search. Indeed, the entire book, as I mentioned last time. Last time we looked at Solomon's dealings with three aspects of man's life independent of God. Human wisdom, earthly labor, and worldly worry. And as we saw last week, he has three important questions. Number one, what on earth is the value of preeminent wisdom? And the answer we found out was minimal. Ultimately, the wise and the foolish both die. Second question was, what on earth is the value of perennial labor, our work? In verses 18 to 21 of chapter 2, we saw that the answer is minimal. You can't keep what you labor for. You can't control it and you can't protect it. You're going to leave it to somebody else that you don't know what they're going to do with it. And then the third question we looked at was, what on earth is the value of persistent worry? In verses 22 and 23. And the answer is nothing. What's the anxiety all good for? Nothing. All it does is give you insomnia and cause you stress. So what's the point of laying up treasures on earth and losing sleep over it? And last time as we closed, I pointed out that in the New Testament, Jesus had something to say about our anxiety concerning life under the sun. And it's interesting that Jesus mentioned Solomon in that text in Matthew chapter 6. Verses 25 to 33, where Jesus talks about not worrying about what you're going to eat, drink, wear, how long you're going to live. The Gentiles eagerly seek after these things, but you don't have to. Jesus said, you don't need to be stressed out about what you're going to eat, drink, wear, how long you're going to live. It's people whose minds are set on this world that pursue those things in an unbalanced way. As God's children, we don't have to worry about it to the point of being anxious. It's unnecessary because of our Father in heaven. It's uncharacteristic because of our faith. And it's unwise because of our promised future. That's what God says in that text in Matthew 6. If, as Solomon proposes in Ecclesiastes, life under the sun is also meaningless and also empty, what on earth are we to do about that? Jesus says, put a relationship with God into the picture in your life and everything changes. Everything changes. So the final question that we ended with last time answers itself, really. The final question, if you remember, was what on earth is the value of a heavenly relationship? Verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. 
This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity, striving after wind. Everything, says Solomon, is good about the value of a heavenly relationship. And that verse 25 is the key verse. You cannot have true joy in your life without it. The joy of wisdom depends on it. The enjoyment of your earthly labor swings on it. The restful relief from worry and stress and anxiety is controlled by it. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? As I said before from chapter 1, verse 14, to chapter 2, verse 23, there's not one mention of God in those verses. And then in a burst of insight, Solomon finally admits here that life under the sun is utterly unenjoyable without him. And that phrase that I asked you to make your mantra last week, that if God's not in it, it ain't worth it. Say it again. If God's not in it, it ain't worth it. It's an unforgettable, undeniable principle. And interestingly enough, it comes straight out of Psalm 127, which is where I want you to turn this morning. I want to uh, kind of work Psalm 127 into this Ecclesiastes chapter 2 passage because they go hand in hand. As I pointed out last time, Psalm 127 is only one of one of only two psalms in the entire Psalter attributed, believe it or not, to Solomon. So he wrote this. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Note the word vain there. It's the same word as vanity in Ecclesiastes. It means empty. The very first time I spoke on this passage in Psalm 127, I developed that phrase, if God's not worth it, if God's not in it, it ain't worth it, that many of you have heard around here over the years to summarize its thrust, and whether you know it or, you know it or not, it's been subtly embedded in your mind. But my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will drive it deeper still from your minds into your hearts. Because if God's not in it, it ain't worth it. Psalm 127 here is a didactic psalm. That means it teaches us. It's a teaching psalm. It exhorts us in the way that we should live. In this psalm, Solomon doesn't get all philosophical about the issue of living life independent of God as he does in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon here just puts it out there in the form of a warning, very similar to Ecclesiastes 2. He uses the same exact topics of work and worry to make his point that if God's not in it, it ain't worth it. What we all need to get into our heads and get our heads around can be best summed up in that memorable phrase. 
And I want you to remember that phrase for the rest of your lives. Think that can happen? If I repeat it enough today, it will happen. Before we're done today, I hope it's going to be a fluorescent yellow warning sign spiritually posted on the turnpike of your minds. Because what it lacks in grammatical structure, it more than makes up for in practical stature. If God's not in it, it ain't worth it. Solomon relates why that's true in the opening verses here of Psalm 127. It's not worth it, first of all, because a life lived independent of God employs us in useless labor. Look at the psalm again, verse 1, the first part of the psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Would anyone argue with the fact that we can become busy building administrative structures, churches, businesses, political action groups, campuses, schools, etc., all under the name of Christian ministry, but if God's not in it, it ain't worth it. Because we're just simply employed in useless effort. Let me illustrate that biblically. One of the greatest work projects in the history of man is the story of utter and complete disaster. As Eugene Peterson has aptly described, the unexcelled organization and enormous energy that were concentrated in building the Tower of Babel resulted in such a shattered community and garbled communication that civilization is still trying to recover from it. That's true, isn't it? According to today's management specialists, those people that were building the Tower of Babel had everything they needed to be successful. Number one, they had a commitment to work on a common goal. Number two, they had unity among the people. And number three, they had an effective communication system. If you unpack that text, you'll find that to be true. They had it all except for one thing, God-centered focus. They did not have a God-centered focus. They were not doing the will of God that we just prayed about, that we just sang about. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They were doing the exact opposite. In Genesis chapter 9, you will find that to be true. It says in Genesis 9-1 that they wanted to build a name for themselves. God was not in their plan at all. And if God's not in it, it ain't worth it. And God saw fit to take care of it, didn't he? Now let me ask you another question. How many of us are engaged in the same exact kind of activity? Even as the church, we need to keep this in check. Solomon states in a blatant manner, if God doesn't build the house... The builders only build shacks. That's the way the message puts it, and I like that. Our response to any kind of success in our lives, whether it is in business dealings, in our churches, or at home, should be David's reaction to the covenant God made with him, which established his throne forever. Coming before the Lord in total humility, this is what David said. Who am I, Lord God? 
And what is my house that you have brought me this far? That should be our response, shouldn't it? Who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Is that your response every day of your life? Because it ought to be. It's got to be. Please don't get me wrong. This psalm is not instructing us to be lazy about our responsibility to work diligently. The contrast in these verses is not between two attitudes toward work, busyness and laziness, but between two attitudes toward God, dependence on Him or independence from Him. That's what the psalm is getting at. Listen, folks, if we, we can work and we can strive, we can fret, we can worry, we can plan, strain, stress, pursue, and build all that we want to. But if the Lord's not at the center of our homes, our church, and our country, it's all useless labor. The simple truth is, is that if God's not in it, it ain't worth it. Not only because life lived independent of God employs us in useless labor, but secondly, because a life lived independent of God entangles us in needless anxiety. Again, Psalm 127 The second part of verse 1. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Again, one of the problems that we have when we erect man-made structures for ourselves is preserving them. Is that right? We want our personal monuments to ourselves to last forever. Constantly, we worry about how we're going to protect and preserve them for posterity. Solomon was like that. Remember that though heralded as the wisest of all men, when he got away from God, his wisdom crumbled. When his labors failed to include God, everything in his life began to fall apart. 1 Kings 11 shows us that it really didn't matter that Solomon had the greatest kingdom in the known world. God tore it right out of his possession. There was nothing that Solomon could have done to protect and preserve that structure once he put God in the back seat. There was nothing he could have done to protect that. God is the only one who can provide and protect and preserve what is eternal. Is that right? Ultimately, he is the watchman. He is the one who guards the house, so to speak. And that applies to everyone across the board. No exceptions. It applies to your life and it applies to my life. For example, you may think that you have the greatest marriage on the planet. Oh yeah, you're doing all the things right. You're going to all the Christian conferences. You've done counseling. You, you just you read all the books. You're applying all the scriptural principles that you know that you're supposed to apply. And you may think that you have the greatest marriage in the world, but if God is not at the center of it, there is nothing that you can do to protect it. Nothing. There's nothing that you can do to guarantee it won't fall apart. God has got to be in the center of your marriage. Is it worth working at? Absolutely. But the only surefire guarantee that you have for its success 
is God at the core, right? He's that third strand in that threefold cord, right? God at the core. It's that simple. And marriage is just one illustration. That applies whether you're talking about a ministry, parenting our children, or anything else in your life. Sure, we have to pay attention and stay alert to the dangers, but our anxieties only serve to paralyze us and are truly needless when we trust the reality that the Lord guards the city, not us. He sees what we don't see. He has the protective power that we don't have. Our worrying accomplishes nothing but physical and emotional disintegration. We lose too much sleep over things we cannot control. And I lose as much sleep as the rest of you. Dependence on God is our only source of peace. Read Philippians chapter 4. Where is the peace that comes beyond all understanding? Where does it come from? Dependence on God through prayer. In fact, it says right in that text, don't be anxious, right? But by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Psalm 127, again, verse 2. It says, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. The message puts it like this. Don't you know he enjoys giving rest to those he loves? When it comes to worry and concern, remember, if God's not in it, it ain't worth it. A life lived independent of God employs us in useless labor and entangles us in needless anxiety. And thirdly, it entraps us in pointless pursuits. Again, verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. You know, we've made a God out of busyness. We, we bow down to it. We worship at its footstool. We cater to it. We let it run and ruin our lives. We forsake the true God of rest to pursue the hollowness of endless endless activity. In his book, Ordering Your Private World, Gordon MacDonald makes a simple but revolutionizing statement. He says, the world and the church need genuinely rested Christians. What do you think about that? The world and the church need genuinely rested Christians. That doesn't refer to people that are always taking time off to go fishing although it may include that. He's calling for people who know how to work hard and experience true rest, knowing that it's God who's at work. Right? Proverbs 10.22, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Real prosperity, real success, Real worthwhile pursuits are a blessing from God that do not require lifestyles accompanied by extreme anxiety or stressed out schedules. Can I say that again? Real prosperity, real success, real worthwhile pursuits are blessings from God 
that do not require lifestyles accompanied by extreme anxiety or stressed out schedules. God gives us enough time to accomplish exactly what He wants us to accomplish for Him. And it does not require a life burdened by excessive stress or nourished on a steady diet of pointless work and worry. His advice to us is to stop stressing out about it. He's got it covered. God says, look to me. Look to me. The prophet Isaiah said it this way, you will keep in perfect peace those who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Do you see God in your everyday life? Have you looked to him? Because I, I must admit, there are times when I don't. But you know what I always find? When I don't, my life goes nuts. Is your life nuts? I know how. You know how I tell? Because every horizontal surface in my life becomes a chaotic mess. My desk, my bureau, my nightstand, my dashboard. You find that to be true? Check out all the horizontal surfaces in your life and see what they look like. That's an indication of what your life is like. Yeah, we're all going to go home and clean now. <laughs> if God's not in the nucleus of our lives, all of our useless labor, all our needless anxiety, all of our pointless pursuits, they add up to one thing, says Psalm 127 and Ecclesiastes 2. Vanity adds up to vanity, emptiness. Again, back in Ecclesiastes 2. For what does a man get, verse 22, in all his labor and striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too, it's vanity. It's vanity. There's nothing better for a man to, to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. And this also I have seen that it is from the hand of God for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him. He's got to be there. He's got to be part of it, not just part of it. He's got to be the central focus of it. I've heard there's a sign along the Alaskan Highway that reads this. You've heard me talk about this before. I'd like to post this everywhere. It says this, choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it for the next 200 miles. Is that true? Is that, yeah. We ought to post that sign on the highways of our minds in our lives because it's a scary little sign. It's the, the I'll do it myself philosophy has become a huge rut for many people, right? They're not choosing carefully enough. It's an independence that results in an empty existence. The choices that you and I make on a day-to-day -day basis concerning this are not trivial. They're not trivial. What kind of road are you traveling right now? Is it a rut? Because friends, you know, a rut is no way to live. You know what a rut is, right? It's nothing more than the grave with the two ends knocked out of it. That's a rut. 
So guess what, Swindoll says, Chuck Swindoll, if you don't have the living Lord in the right perspective, if you don't have Jesus Christ as the nucleus of your plans, you are facing endless miles of bad road. If you remove God, then you remove enjoyment, you remove purpose, you remove direction, meaning, and anything eternal connected with your life. And if, then you're left with 20, 30, 40 years of sleepless nights and nothing to show for it when they put you in the box. Are you in that place today? Because there is a solution. Solomon understood the answer to the dilemma raised in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 22 and 23 all along. Yet over time, it seems that he had even forgotten it. And that's why I'm preaching this. Have you forgotten it? Have I? What was once the anchor of Solomon's stability in his heart, and had long, he had long since been buried by years of neglect, suddenly emerged out of the depths of his soul once again here in verse 25. Literally, the Hebrew text of verse 24 does not contain the words better and than. If you read it, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. The text actually reads like this. It says, a man can do nothing to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. That's what the text literally says. In other words, there is nothing inherently in us as human beings that enables us to find value or purpose or true joy in the things that we do in life without God. Without Him, there is no true joy. It's a false pseudo-joy. You say, well, I know a lot of people that are happy. Really? Ultimately happy? Truly happy? Stable? If something bad were to befall them? The enjoyment of life is a gift of God. A gift of God. Look at chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 of Ecclesiastes. I know, Solomon says, that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of who? It's the gift of God that you realize that. God's got to be in it. It comes directly from his hand. Verse 25, again, is the crux of this whole thing. Here is the message of the book, says Eugene Peterson. Enjoyment is a gift of God. Enjoyment is a gift of God. To truly accept that God wants us to experience full joy in our lives as a gift is radically transforming to your soul. We are often under the false pretense and impression that God wants to withhold joy from us, right? We tend to think things like this, don't we? If it tastes good, it will probably give you cancer. If it feels good, it must be immoral. If it's fun, it's probably dangerous. If it smells enticing, it is likely seductive. If it sounds pleasant, it is probably superficial. If it's pleasurable, it must not be biblical. Right? Don't you think that way? C.S. Lewis once said that joy is the serious business of heaven. 
Joy is the serious business of heaven. Paul intimates that in the New Testament that the kingdom of God is not merely eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and sour faces. Right? What is it? Righteousness, peace, and joy. How? In the Holy Spirit. We're talking about worldly mirth here. We're talking about joy in the Spirit. It's Romans 14, 17, in case you're wondering. In a moment of blessing and benediction, Paul also pronounces these words. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a result of the Spirit living in you. In his letter to Timothy, Paul said that we're not to fix our hope on the uncertainty of the things that are under the sun like riches and possessions, but only on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Yay. 1 Timothy 6.17 says that. That tells me, friends, that God is not really a killjoy. On the contrary, when we're in a right relationship to our Father, we can experience joy in all things, amen? Even in the things that are not necessarily enjoyable, in pain, in sorrow, in grief, in disappointment, as well as in happiness, victory, and success. If we're paying attention to God, to what God is giving us, viewing it as a gift then we can do, as James says, we can consider it all joy whenever we encounter various trials. We can do what Paul says in Philippians 4. We can rejoice in the Lord always. And we can do what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, that in everything we can give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say in everything, for everything, give thanks. It's in everything, give thanks. Why? Because we see the hand of God in it, and we love God, and we know God loves us, and we can find joy in that. This is a phenomenal challenge. After all, it would be much easier if the Bible said things like this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when life goes well. Rejoice sometimes and give thanks only when you feel like it. But that's not what the Bible says. But life in relationship with Christ invites us to train ourselves to pay attention to God. Pay attention to the joy that comes from the hand of God in every situation. Because He's trying to get through to us. He is but we haven't learned how to pay attention, have we? I love this story. Someone wrote one afternoon, my family and I waited. My family waited in a sitting room for my sister to come up from her dorm to join us for family day. In the same room was a mother of a classmate of my sister who was waiting with her eight-year-old son. For an hour and 15 minutes, we waited. An hour and 15 minutes. And I don't suppose that woman stopped talking longer than it took to inhale. You know people like that? I know people like that. 
She talked, as the saying went, before the day of compact discs as if she'd been vaccinated with a phonograph needle. Some of you don't even know what a phonograph is. She talked as if words were the rope that kept her tethered to the earth. She talked until I knew more about her family than I did about some of my closest relatives. Finally, her daughter stepped into the room. Well, we must be going, said the mom, keeping the torrent flowing. I have to get reservations for dinner. We have to meet my husband at the restaurant. You know, and oh yes, I need to stop by the store and get some buttons. Then her son spoke. The only words, as best I can recollect it, that he uttered during the whole hour and 15 minutes. He turned to his mother and said, as only an eight-year-old son could, Mother, you need to get a button for your mouth. Out of the mouths of babes. All of us were thinking it, but only an eight-year-old had the nerve or honesty to foolishness to utter it. You need a button for your mouth. I am the God of the universe, maker of heaven and earth, says God. I designed your body. I fashioned your world. I created your potential. I have wisdom and guidance and love that I long to communicate to you. But I can't get through. God says, your heart and your life are too noisy. And I will not scream. God says, I love you, but you need a button for your mouth. The first task in spiritual life, says one author, the one to which we must return over and over again is simply this. Pay attention to God. Pay attention to God. Because our true joy then is not dependent upon circumstances. It is conditioned upon a relationship, a faith relationship with God. And to the one who is in a pleasing relationship with him, his hand of blessing is wide open. Who is the one in a pleasing relationship to God? Hebrews 11, verse 6 answers that question. Hebrews 11 says this, verse 6, And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. You must have faith. The irony of it all, as Chuck Swindoll says, is that those who are right with God ultimately derive benefit from everyone's labor. That's what it says in verse 26. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 says, A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. Isn't it strange that the more you run after life, panting after every pleasure, the less you will find 
But the more you take life as a gift from God's hand, responding in thankful gratitude for the delight of the moment, the more life seems to come to you. You find that to be true? Even the trials and the heartaches and the handicaps that others seek to avoid are touched with the blessing of heaven and minister to the heart of the one who has learned to take them from the hand of God, the one who has learned to pay attention to God. Don't, don't be under the impression, the false impression, that only non-Christians have this attitude that Solomon is talking about here in chapter 2. Don't for one minute be under that false impression. Even a Christian can get strangely mixed up in this perspective. And if one is not careful, life can still seem very, very empty to you. I read a heartbreaking letter from a Christian who was going through an extremely difficult time. Things I had heard and read in this book that had turned a corner for him and his life is back on target. But when he wrote it, he was far from seeing God's hand in everything. He's feeling and applying the negative aspect of if God's not in it, meaning this life, then my life's not worth it. And you know what that leads to. That is not the sentiment that this phrase means, is getting at. Listen to his candid remarks in his letter says, I've been asking myself some of these kinds of questions, Solomon's questions, and now I'm beginning to answer myself. I want to make some things clear up front. I may not be very old, but I figured out a long time ago that pursuing the world's pleasures wouldn't satisfy. I know running away is no answer either, but don't you dare think that these feelings are confined to those who choose these roads. Don't you dare think that only middle-aged, money-grubbing entrepreneurs face this crisis. I'm not yet 28 years old. I talk heart-to-heart heart heart with God every day, and I live a life within the confines of a sensitive conscience. I have a beautiful wife and a daughter, but I'm empty. I've come to the conclusion that living is a waste of time. All is vanity, striving after wind. There is not one thing on this earth to make it worth staying. I used to think that ministering to others were reason enough to live. Was reason enough to live. It isn't. Neither is raising a family. Yet far be it from me to sin against God by taking my own life. I have no intention of doing anything like that. I've just realized that this life has nothing to offer. It does not mean I am without hope. I'm gambling on eternities being worth it. I have to take that gamble. It's my only choice, he writes. I've run out of other choices. Responsibilities make me feel like I should stay, but only the hope of God's smile makes me willing to stay. Don't forget that this book, meaning Ecclesiastes, applies even to growing Christians. Many of us wonder daily if it's worthwhile to go on. Maybe that's you. One pastor remarks, if you're a Christian, perhaps this letter sounds like something you could have written. If so, please understand that I'm not leaving you out. Bad roads and futile dead-end streets are not limited to non-Christians. 
But the difference comes in being able to persevere in spite of the difficulties. Without Christ, there is no way through. With Him, more miles of bad road only means that you're getting closer than ever to God's ultimate destination for you, His greater glory. That kind of insight will improve your vision. You see, sometimes, and I think this is the case in what Solomon is saying, that the futility of life can lead us to the reality of God. And when God is in it, it is more, infinitely more than worth it. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us in your word even in words that seem so dismal and cynical. Thank you for Solomon's journey that has been recorded in history for us to see, that we may learn from it and not make the same mistakes. Lord, we place ourselves at the foot of the cross today. As we've celebrated the table, we remember what it cost Jesus for our ultimate salvation. And as he looked ahead to that cross, he didn't see anything but pain and suffering until he looked beyond the cross to the joy that lied before him, lay before him in the resurrection and the exaltation to his Father's right hand. And we can look beyond whatever this world brings to us, Lord God, in the way of trials because we know the joy that one day we will be where you are and your kingdom will be on earth as it is in heaven. And we will be part of it, those of us who have faith in Christ. And for those that don't, my plea and my prayer today is that they may bow their hearts and their heads and give their lives over to you in trust and in faith to receive the forgiveness that you accomplished at the cross and the energy and the power that you brought to us through the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit that is within us. May no one leave this place without the hope of Christ in their lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.